my theory is that we're all products. Like the most important product is us. I look for strategic thinking skills. I look for people that are proactive and results oriented. I look for people that understand the value of culture and they're a good fit for the culture of a company. I look for business maturity. That's really judgment, which is, do you make good decisions? And then we all have domain expertise in certain areas. I look for these six skills in product leaders. They are technical, do work well with engineers, their management. Can you get people working together to build stuff? Creative business. Do you know how to fundamentally create value for shareholders? marketing, packaging, and positioning ideas. And then this last thing is consumer science. Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. A lot of you already know who Gib is. He's a very influential person in the product space. And I thought I'd just get him on stage as quickly as possible, just so he can introduce himself. Hey, Gabe, how's it going? Good, Axel. Things are well. I'm in Bend, Oregon, west coast of the United States. Yeah, okay, you great. want me to do the quick intro? Uh, I'll be super bonus points for being brief. I was in marketing and then I switched into product. I joined Electronic Arts when, as a punk kid when it was a punk startup. I learned how to build stuff. I started a kid's software startup called Creative Wonders. I sold that. Kevin O'Leary, who's Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. And we sold that company to Mattel. And then I did two failed startups, boom, right in a row. Then I joined Netflix. That one worked out. And then Chegg was my last startup. Chegg is a textbook rental and homework help company that went public. And actually Chegg, Netflix, and I have all done very well in the pandemic because everybody went online. It's been a wild and fun year. This is my 141st thing in, in 365 days. So. Amazing. That's great. So what are you doing now? What are you doing these days? Yeah. So I, I'm actually in Bend because my wife and I are buying a house up here. We're usually a little south of San Francisco. This is an athletic center. Today I'll be able to go skiing. I've got my road bike on my bike, my mountain bike on my car as well. And I skate ski and downhill. And so we're going to live between here. It's, it's only an eight hour drive and there's a direct flight on United. And both my wife and I are double vaccinated. So we're really excited stuff. I do lots of talks, workshops, exec events. I am an advisor to multiple companies and board member. And I'm, I've been doing a lot of writing. I've been learning to write. And I think I'm get, actually getting pretty good at it. Sounds great. Have you found that COVID somehow has afforded you more time to write and produce content and things like that? I've seen you've, re you've recently launched your Substack and newsletter. How's that been going? Good. So I actually was in London like March 5th. I did a live event in Dublin a year ago. And then my wife's a physician. She said, Give, you have to come home. They're going to shut down European travel. So I went home. And then the next three weeks, I just thought about, okay, what will my year look like if it's all virtual? I'm a feedback freak. So I got a net promoter survey for everything. I'll get it for this session as well. And I spent the first couple of months trying to figure out how to create a virtual experience that was as good as an in-person one. And I was able to do that. And I use my NPS as a proxy. I do this integration of Google Slides and Slido. And the whole thing is how do you engage an audience? And I guess we'll see right. a lot of some of this tonight, right? Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah. Hi, Olivier. Hi, Alexia. Hi. Hi, everyone. Alexia's in Paris. And Olivier yeah. goes back and forth between India and Paris. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And Olivier is a starter and a builder, and Alexia is a builder, right? Yeah. Cool. What else do you want us to know about you, Olivier? I warned Axel that sometimes I just take over. Uh, yeah, just sure. Tell us more about you, sure, Olivier. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've been doing product work for 10 years with three chapters. Basically, I started as a developer, a full stack developer, like 10 years ago. Then I became a designer, UX designer. And, and then I became a product manager. And more recently, I'm also advising companies and, uh, and doing mentoring and exploring a few ideas about my next startup. So you're Eng Design Product Management. You're a triple threat. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And you're a starter, a builder. Okay. What do you got, Alexia? What do you got? I've been working in product management for, I guess, 10 or 15 years. So I've been working in innovation department, like building services from scratch, but also leading like product organization with 80 people. So I'm being able to do both. And nowadays I'm working with the French government. I'm coaching teams that are working on small projects that has impact. It's very interesting. Got it. So coaching and consulting, are those similar words? Yeah. Okay. And then Olivia, you're looking for your next great idea. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Axel? I'm just hosting these things, man. <laughs> okay. You go back to hosting. Go for it. Cut. Try to rein yeah. us in. I just, just want to know. That's great. This is what, this is our engagement experiment tonight. So I'm quite interested in seeing how this pans out in the, when I look at the metrics later. So that's a good experiment. So a few things today I want to talk about, actually. One of your favorite topics is product strategy, right? True. And in one of your essays and medium, you talk about your delightful, hard to copy, merging enhancing ways, which I feel like is, is your brand. And I've heard it a lot. And you talk about strategic thinking and how it enables you to think ahead, to effectively skip quarters and build enduring value. And it reminded me of a conference that I attended in London where you were talking about the wicked hard decisions at Netflix. Yeah. And you talked about, and this really stuck with me, you talked about that your theory was that a lot of people think that making great decisions is about strategic genius, and you believe that's not true. One of the questions I had was, as product managers grow in their craft, how can they build confidence in their decision-making process? And how do you, how do they develop this strategic thinking? Yeah, maybe we'll play a little bit. So there's two things. This model of delighting customers in hard to copy, margin-enhancing ways, that's one thing. And then the second is how do you help people improve their decision-making skills? So let's just do the first one. Olivia, what's hard to copy about Netflix? If I gave you 500 million bucks to create a startup to compete with Netflix, what would you find challenging about that? I think it would be like the top of mind effect, like the brand, basically. Yep. Brands won. And Alexi, you can jump in too. What is hard to copy about what Netflix has done? Fishing for four things. I would say the contents. Good. So the original content. That's actually because they're so big, they have an economy of scale. So they're able to afford $20 billion for content where poor Amazon can only do 8 billion. So we got brand economy of scale, which is the original content. Now I'm fishing for two more ideas. And actually you can play too. I'd say experience. How's uh, the, the user experience? The user experience, it's simple. Yeah. So I'm going to cheat a little and say that's actually based on the technology. Just to give you a sense, like one of my favorite technologies, and this is hard to copy, is personalization. But for 
all four of us, Netflix has a forced rank list of like 10,000 movies and TV shows from a title that's at the top that they think we're going to love to a bottom, which is going to suck. And then that row structure is basically filtering your personal list. And it's doing the, the top action venture movies for Axel. And it's doing the top documentaries for Olivia. I don't know what your guys' movies taste, but answer your question. That simple experience is because of the hard to copy advantage that Netflix has in technology. And one of those technology issues is personalization. I'm fishing from one more idea. Oh, I see it. Pierre's saying UI adaptability. I think that's the, a, a similar, which is the unique technology. Recommendations is great. Great, Pierre, which that's an example of the personalization technology. Okay. I'm look at, there's one more big category of thinking. And my little hint is what makes Facebook so darn hard to copy? The network effect. The network effect. Yeah. So think about it. Every device in the world, every screen in the world is magically pre-wired to let you watch Netflix, which is way cool. So anyways, so most people can understand that you can figure out how to delight a customer and margin enhancing is just trying to make the business work. It's the hard to copy stuff that many folks don't think about. And if you can do the hard to copy things, then you can maniacally focus on your customer instead of being worried about your competition. You can behave like you don't have a competitor. And this is the great companies are competitive aware, but they're not competitive focused. They tend to be customer obsessed. Okay. Okay. That's a little on DHM. For instance, we'll do a case on that one in a second. And then how do you get better at decision making? So it's always the good and the great companies form a hypothesis, test it really quickly. So they do this high cadence experimentation. So you just got to try a lot of ideas to see what works. So for instance, last year you asked, okay, how did I spend my time? One of my first experiments was on Teachable. I took one of my work workshops and put it on Teachable. And it turns out for me, that's a failed hypothesis. I knew that within four weeks. Whereas I learned that Substack, writing a Ask Give newsletter on Substack, I've gotten 4,000 subscribers in three months. That's a positive hypothesis. If you look carefully, I'm trying to create a connection with younger product leaders who are less male. So I'm experimenting right now with Instagram and I have 190 followers in my first three weeks, but for a 59 year old dude, that's okay. But I'm just trying to give you an example of what high cadence experimentation looks like. And that's really the key. And with each experiment, you learn something. And that makes you more confident and more comfortable in every subsequent decision that you make. Hey, can we do a little case? Yeah, sure. Let's okay, cool. You ready? Netflix is contemplating an idea called Netflix Party. So it'll let people around the world that are all members watch the same movie at the same time. And then while they're watching that movie to chat with each other, to heckle each other, to use emojis, whatever you want. And so if you think about the opportunity to delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways, create profit, is this a good or a bad idea? What's your initial intuition on this, Alexia? Do you think this is a, you could say it's a good idea, it's a bad idea, or I'm not sure. Those are your three choices. I would say it would worth a try. With the COVID situation, I think it's definitely worth a try. Yeah, good. And it's positive. Good. Where are you on this one, Olivia? I guess I would experiment it, but I, yeah, I would experiment. Yeah, I would make an experiment even if I have my doubts about it. And why do you have doubts? 
because I, I think it's not a simple experience because it's basically Netflix is all about watching what you want to watch at the time you want to watch. And here you are in a live situation. So you have to commit at the same time with several people, etc. So basically it's anything but simple. And so it could look like, like a very good idea in the current situation, but I'm really not sure it will replace, for example, seeing a movie with friends and with beer or I don't know what, or popcorn. And so I'm not sure it would yeah, stay on. Yeah, but I would experiment it. And uh, Axel, can people chat and let us know what they think? Yeah, sure. Good or bad idea? Axel, yeah, what's your thinking on this? I'm really trying to um, make you work. You have to produce. I guess <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Actually, I guess I'm not sure about people wanting to watch the same thing at the same time. I'm. This is the first thing I'm thinking is, I don't. I don't know that. I watch the same thing as my friends do. So I would try and investigate really? whether... There's really an <laughs> interesting conversation going on here. So let me give you yeah. a couple more data points. By the way, Amazon launched this. Hulu, which is in the United States, launched this. Disney Plus, which is growing in the world, launched this as well. Does that make you feel better or worse about the idea? Worse, I guess. Because oh, it means tell me more, Olivier. Go ahead. Because then it's it's then not hard to copy because everyone has already so it's not there is no differentiation and so let me say um, by definition and I it's never use coffee. It's so cool. Okay, so I'm gonna pick up on an issue that the commenter I saw your comment quickly. Axel Olivier, they all said a similar thing. So Netflix, we were trying to build this experience. The brand promise was movie enjoyment made easy. We're trying to create that simple experience. And I saw it in the thread of the conversation, which is when you go to watch a movie, sometimes you just want to watch the movie, right? You don't want to be chatting and heckling, et cetera. And then another thing that came up, it is hard to agree on what movie to watch together and at what time, which is why Netflix gives you like three simultaneous streams. Like Kristen, my wife is watching with me. And Brent, my 23-year-old daughter's watching this and Kelsey, my 20. It's trying to make it easy and it's not easy to agree. So anyways, if we follow this one through, my hypothesis is it won't delight enough customers for all these reasons. It's not hard to copy. And then in order to be margin enhancing, there's really only two ways an idea like this will help build the business is if enough customers use it and rave about it, so they tell their friends and that brings more customers on or a significant percentage of members are using it. And because they're using it, they're a little less likely to cancel at the end of a month, okay? So I'll just give you a little bit of history. Netflix has failed repeatedly on social. Like we created this feature where you get movie ideas from your friends. It turns out your friends movie tastes suck. That's the real problem, okay? We thought we could fix that with algorithms, we couldn't. And then there's another problem. You actually don't want your friends to know everything you're watching. Like last night, I was watching Cake Boss. I was binge watching on um, Cake. And I see a comment, how private are your Netflix choices? They're very private, but you don't want everybody to know what you watched last night. And that's really why socials failed at Netflix and in the context of, of movies, social has not been successful. Of course, it's wonderfully successful in music and a lot of things that Facebook does is enabled by that social. Anyways, I'm just trying to bring to life the idea of having a strategy where you're delighting customers in these hard to copy margin enhancing ways. And Netflix hasn't even bothered to try this. 
because based on that social history, they know that less than 5% will use it. And that's not enough to improve retention. Like you need 15 or 20% of folks to use it to have a chance of really making them stick because of that. And if it's less than 5%, you're not going to hear people raving about this idea. And I just love the discipline of Netflix not doing this. And Olivier pointed this out. If you create a product with all these little features, it's now like a Swiss army knife where there's 12 blades and you're not sure what to do. So think about the discipline required in saying no to all these ideas to create that simple experience where Olivier can just fade into his and watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, which is the ultimate leave your brains at the door comedy. You with me, Olivier? Completely. <laughs> hey, Alexia, what's your favorite? What's a favorite movie or TV show for you? Well, let's say I would say House of Cards, but it's quite easy. But that's cool. No, that's, that's, it's all good choices. Do you happen to like Breaking Bad? No. You don't like it? No. Or do you like the Mandalorian? One? Sorry? Do you like the Mandalorian? Yeah. The Disney Plus. You do? Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really trying to understand everybody's movie taste. Okay. So Axel, I think I answered both of your questions. I talked yeah, about did. the lighting and hard to copy margin weight and then high cadence decision-making to make better decisions. It's not strategic genius. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, Head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. Yep. Thanks for that. And this actually brings me to another question I had, actually. Olivier mentioned experimenting. And I also said I tried to find out about these things before figuring out whether it's the right thing to do or not. And in that talk where I saw you initially, you talked about customer science as a discipline at Netflix. Yep. Can you explain what customer science was at Netflix and how it enabled product decisioning? Sure. So I call it consumer science. It's trying to develop consumer insight really through four sources. We've actually talked about quite a few of them already. So you actually have four sources of data, whether you're a consumer company or enterprise company. So you have existing data. What are people doing today or not? What percent of Instagram users actually post a story? That's existing data. And then you have qualitative. So you can talk to people in focus groups. You can do ethnography. You can do usability. That's qualitative. And then you have survey. So we'll do a survey at the end of this, asking people what they think. And then the big dog is A-B testing. And that's the cool one for me. So if Netflix were really curious about this Netflix party feature, they might put 100,000 people into a test cell with that experience of Netflix party. And that would be the experiment. And then they would be observing it to see if it changed customer behavior. At the end of the day, they want to see if the people who have Netflix party, are they less likely to cancel? And of course, the prediction is no, it won't change their behavior. But it's those four sources of data, existing data, 
qualitative, the focus group stuff, survey, and then the big dog A-B test that help you to form. That's what I call consumer science. And you have a hypothesis. The initial hypothesis was this social feature, Netflix party, will improve. And then my anticipation is that's a failed hypothesis. By the way, even in the failure, you've learned a lot. Like, And just in this conversation, I got good consumer insight, qualitative, about why people might not like that because they just want to fade into the movie, right? Yeah. Anyways, so for me, that's consumer science. And the cool thing, it's really consumer science, just a different way of saying the experimental method. Form a hypothesis, use multiple sources of data to learn and experiment, look at the results, and then make a judgment about whether to do it or not. And that's the fascinating thing. Despite all the math, I'll give you a simple one. Despite all the math. Okay. So Netflix, it has a one month free trial. At the end of a month, you decide whether you're going to cancel or stay with the service. And there's one little issue, which is Netflix doesn't remind you on day 28 that your free month is about to end. And a bright product leader said, okay, we'll send an email. We'll send a text message. Your homepage will be personalized. Your first month is about to end, okay? And that's a free trial reminder. He tested this. And in that test group, what do you think happened to the first month cancel rate when people were reminded to cancel? What do you think happened? It get higher. Yeah, more people cancel. It's a reminder to cancel. So the interesting thing is that that P1 retention, the number of folks who usually 90% of people continue with the service, and to your point, Alexia, because of the reminder, it went from 90 down to 85, okay? Only 85% continued with the service. So congratulations, Alexia, the product manager with this idea. You just lost the company 100 million bucks, okay? That's what the data says, okay? Why might you do this despite the fact that you're losing 100 million bucks? What would be the argument for doing this? Maybe because people, when they realize that actually they are paying for the subscription, at this moment, they're going to unsubscribe and maybe their feelings about Netflix will be harsher than if they've been. This whole idea of feelings, Matt, in the old days, companies used to make it impossible to quit. Netflix is making it easier to quit. And that creates a relationship of trust. Okay. Olivier, which hard to copy advantage is this idea improving? I would say the, yeah, the delightful part and the retention will be okay. better. Because- so you got it. Okay. So there's two things. Yes, of course it's delightful. This is a really neat thing to do. And Alex, I saw Alex in the audience, he was saying it's all about trust. And trust is all about which hard to copy advantage. Which one? You only have the four brand. choices. Brand, right? Brand, so you're yeah. delighting. You're building a hard to copy advantage. And all the math says you're going to lose 100 million bucks. And the human judgment, Tom Willerer, the product manager, decided to do this. He thought losing 100 million bucks was worse building an even stronger, hard to copy brand and doing the right thing. It was cheap to his point of view for the cost of ethics and doing the right thing to lose 100 million bucks. And by the way, A-B tests don't tell you everything. That person, those people who canceled, they might've been like, oh my God, this company is amazing. And they came back six months later and they stayed with the service forever. You can't measure that. And that's why you have to have these conversations 
even when you're staring at the data that says you're going to lose 100 million bucks. Netflix really did this. They do a free trial reminder at the end of the month. Quite cool. Okay. And thank you. And I guess you, you, using this example, you're also saying that Netflix is playing the long game. Yeah, and this isn't fair as well. Olivier worked, he's a starter. He starts with young companies. Today, Netflix can afford to lose 100 million bucks. Okay, at the startup, they couldn't. Another little trick question that I play here. Like all of us as product leaders, we feel like every decision we make is a big deal. And so I have this notion of, is the decision high stakes or low stakes? So Alexia, for Netflix, is losing $100 million high stakes or low stakes? Depends on the stage of the company, but that would be... Yeah, so Netflix is doing about 10 billion revenue, 10 billion revenue today. Yeah, so today I would say it's a low stake. Good. And Olivier, for a punk startup, how would you feel about losing 100 million bucks? I guess it wouldn't cost me 100 million, but let's imagine. Yeah, I think I would feel very... Partially about it, yeah. You would feel very bad. And there's one other thing on decision-making, which is, is the decision reversible or not? So in this case, if you chose to do the free trial reminder at the end of the month, a month later, you could switch. You could switch back. It's reversible. And by definition, if it's easy to switch, it's a low-stakes decision. So I got married a long time ago. My friends were, I was nervous. And they said, hey, Gib, don't worry about it. If it doesn't work out, you can get divorced. It's reversible. So I've now been married 30 years, same person. So it worked out. But my point is in decision-making, all of us think that these decisions are really a big deal. And like 70% of the time, they're actually low stakes from a magnitude or they're low stakes because they're so easy to reverse. Eric is basically asking whether exploratory research is part of it and whether it's something you'd only do at the beginning or it's the kind of practice that you would do throughout the company's lifetime. Yeah, it's, it depends. But for any product leader, the question comes up a lot, especially with enterprise-focused product leaders who were at this challenge to do A-B testing. I always remind people they have four sources of data. And to Eric's question, things tend to start with hypothesis. So I'll give you one. I have no freaking clue on this one. Netflix is all about binge watching, right? What if... Netflix actually released a new episode every week, which a lot of folks do. And they might do that to build more of a cultural phenomenon where people are all at lunch or at the water cooler or on Zoom during COVID. And they're just talking about the fact that whatever episode eight of The Mandalorian came out last night. Okay. That's a hypothesis. How might you explore it? And to Eric's question, you might spend time talking to people who don't really understand why they're so into binge watching. How would they feel about it being delayed by a week? You'd start a conversation with that, qualitative. But in that case, I would get to A-B testing pretty darn quickly. And by the way, it's really hard to change customer behavior and finding a metric to discover if that's a good or a bad idea is really tricky. And at the end of the day, Trying to figure out real consumer insight about people, about humans, is really hard. We are very hard to understand. We make all sorts of weird decisions. Welcome to being human. (laughs) Who would have thunk that you could create that an online experience using Google Slides and Slido and Zoom or StreamYard 
could be equal to an in-person experience. Like a, a year ago, I would have said, I'm not sure. But now I've learned that it's all about engagement. And those are engagement tactics to bring the audience into the conversation. Eric, thank you for your comment and question. That brings me to another question for you, actually. You talk about when you were at Netflix, you say that half of the time you got things wrong. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. How did Netflix manage at the time in creating this environment where people are comfortable with getting things wrong, with failure? And what was your role as a product leader in creating this environment? I stopped working full-time a few years ago and I had time to think, which is really an interesting thing to do. So the cool thing for me is when I'm working with different companies, I'm fundamentally trying to get three things right. So we've been talking about consumer science. That's the experimentation, the high cadence experimentation. We've talked a little bit about strategy, developing a plan. But by the way, you know, almost by definition, as you said, half of those hypotheses will be wrong when you actually experiment. The third part is culture, okay? So at Netflix, there are a couple of really, like you could Google, pretend you're looking for a job at Netflix and you'll see the culture deck. It's well articulated. But for instance, part of the culture is intellectual curiosity, okay? Courage and candor. Those are three different ideas. And so we were all trained to keep asking, what could we do to delight customers? Okay, why aren't people into social? That's the intellectual curiosity. The candor, the, then the next one is the intellectual curiosity, courage. It's the courage to, to say, actually, despite the fact that Amazon is, is doing social, Netflix is going party, Hulu is doing party, Disney Plus is doing party, the courage and the candor to say, that's a stupid idea, right? That begins a real active debate. And the short answer Actually, it takes years to create that environment. To your question, I'll tell you four winners in the long term. And while I was at Netflix and four losers. So personalization, awesome. Delivering discs instantly in the mail next day, awesome. Hitting, letting you hit a play button to start watching right away, awesome. Social, failure. We actually had a hypothesis that a more entertaining experience on the website would improve retention. We did something called Max, this wild character on the, on the PlayStation who would engage with you. Like, it was really cool. It was really fun. It was really funny. And it made retention worse. That's a failed hypothesis. Okay. Another failure. Oh, this is interesting. Original content clearly is a big winner for Netflix. Right when Alexia brought it up, 2013 is the launch of House of Cards. We actually experimented with that idea 2009 in a DVD by mail era, and it was a failure. I just did four wins and four losses. And by the way, one of those failed the exclusive content originals in 2009 and was a huge winner in 2013. Huh, who could have predicted that? And that's, this is the value of experimentation. It's the, oh, I'll give you another one. This is a wild one. So another thing about the Netflix culture is filled with iconoclasts. And if you don't know what iconoclast is, Anybody out there that has a 13, 14, or 15-year-old child, they know. They're always saying, why? And then refusing to do what you want them to do. So a new product manager came into Netflix. Netflix had, they invented these star ratings, like five stars. They collected like 10 billion ratings. And their hypothesis was that, no, star ratings don't matter. Whoa, that's daring. It was weird because Netflix, we actually managed to, through personalization, 
everybody's was watching better movies as valued by that star rating. Like when Olivier's would have gone from an average of four stars all the way up to four and a half. But there was no evidence that retention was getting better because the quality through star ratings was better. That's a fail. What the heck is going on? You guys know, they, know why this happened? Why don't people care about higher star rating movies? What do they really care about? Wow. I guess it's what you said earlier. No, that's, so first, it depends. We are not always looking for quality. Yes. We are also looking for entertainment and just chill out. And so obviously you can completely pick. And I did it like so many times during our times of COVID because yeah. I needed feel good content and just yeah. to let the brand out. And so I would pick like lower quality on purpose. Yes, yeah, so I brought up Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Is <laughs> Mall Cop 2, yeah. It's a three-star movie. movie. But people <laughs> really enjoy it. And that was the insight, which is, it's not really <clears throat> about movie quality through rating. It's about enjoyment. And that's why the stars are gone. There's a prediction for Alexia that she will enjoy House of Cards it's like a 98% match for her. Not saying it's a five-star movie. It's just saying we think you'll enjoy it. And for Olivier, I'm just picking on him. 98% match that he'll love Paul Blart Mall Cop because he understands that sometimes you just want to veg out. It's cool. Thanks for that. I have a quick question because you mentioned a few experiments and some were failures, other were winners. And one was a failure and then become a winner being the original content. And so one question I had is, how often do you revisit some of the past experiments? Because what I witness in some companies is that whenever we have a learning, we don't actually take into account that it can fade, that the situation can change around us, et cetera, et cetera. So what is your thinking on that? So Alexia brought it up. When we did the Netflix party case, she, the first thing she said was, gosh, times are different because of COVID. People really might enjoy a social experience today. So my first thing is, what, if anything, has changed where we had a negative result then and a positive result? Now, in that case, it didn't work out. To your question, exclusive content in a DVD era, it did fail. But exclusive content in a streaming era worked. And I'll just explain why. Before Netflix became a streaming company, it was about 80% of the DVDs were movies and only 20% were TV, episodic TV. And then by 2015, it was actually a flip. Netflix had about 20% movie and 80% episodic TV. I think today it's more balanced, 50-50. So think about this from an investment point of view, when Netflix made its initial investment in House of Cards for 100 million bucks, they were creating these characters and a beginning of a storyline that Alexia could fall in love with. And then that could go on for six seasons. Okay. That's like the equivalent of House of Cards. If it was a sequel, that would be like House of Cards 100. And movies can't do that. You, you never watch Rocky 100, right? There's Rocky 8, but you can't go all the way up to 100. So in an investment point of view, there's a large initial invest in starting the first season. And then over time, Bethany's creates these the relationship with the House of Cards characters. And it's, it actually requires less investment. It's just a lot more economically friendly 
And then the other thing that happened for Netflix, it had this huge economy of scale. When it had 200 million members, you can afford to make the $500 million investment in Stranger Things, which is what they did, where DVD era Netflix in 2005, we only had one or 2 million members. So I'm just pointing out that if you retest a hypothesis, you want to be conscious of what might have changed where something that failed before will win, succeed in the future, which is cool. I already mentioned that consumer insight and consumer science is really hard. Predicting humans' behavior is very hard. And I guess if you've got these insights right, some of the insights you have and you use have some form of a half-life, some form of decay, decay over time. You can't just do this piece of research today, get this insight and then use it as valid throughout all eternity kind of thing. Cool. Hey, Which actually, think- don't we do a little career hacking? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. I was going to suggest it actually. So we got the point that product is, you have to engage in this experimental process to figure out what works or doesn't. And my theory is that we're all products. Like the most important product is us. I'm a product. And so you have to embrace this sort of experimental method in your career. I, we did put the link for my Instagram page. The only reason I put that there is at the top and the highlights on my profile page, I, I did a little story for interviewing product leaders. And I just want to have a little fun for a second with Olivier. So Olivier, I already found out a lot about you because I'm always trying to understand as a product leader as a starter, which is something from scratch or a builder helps scale stuff up or a huge company, super scaler. And I actually learned that both Olivier and Alexi are, you're both builders and it sounds like Olivier, you're more of a starter. So then my next questions are, I look for these six skills in product leaders. They are technical, do work well with engineers. They're management. Can you get people working together to build stuff? Creative skills. Listen carefully because I'm going to ask, what are your top two or so? The next one would be business. Do you know how to fundamentally create value for shareholders? Marketing, packaging, and positioning ideas. Olivia, you already told me you have design skills, which is way cool. In fact, I'm going to guess your skills in a second. Design. And then this last thing is consumer science. We've been talking a lot about that. So here's my guess of you, Olivia. You're very strong in engineering and very strong in design. Did I get you? Yeah, I guess. And then consumer science, I think. Oh, good. So those are your top three skills. All I try to do is figure out somebody's superpowers. And honestly, I don't care about things that you're weak in. Alexia, what are your top two or three skills on that list? First would be management. I'm really good at making people collaborate. Yeah. And after I would say marketing and business. Cool. So I've learned so much about you already. And so now I want to understand... Your skills, I'm always trying to understand as people grow up, do they have leadership potential? Whether they're just starting or they're a manager or a director or a VP or a CPO or even a CEO, for every person, doesn't matter if they're in product or marketing or finance, what are your leadership skills? And so th- these are the skills as people grow up. So I look for leadership and I define it here, inspired communication of a vision. Management, as people grow up, It's really about hiring and developing teams. It's no longer about just managing a project, which is what Alexia pulled up earlier. I look for strategic thinking skills. I look for people that are proactive and results oriented. I look for people that that understand the value of culture and they're a good fit for the culture of a company. I look for business maturity. That's really judgment, which is, do you make good decisions? It's actually not as correlated to age as I had hoped, okay? 
Mark Zuckerberg was making amazing decisions at 19. And then you can ignore the last one, but we all have domain expertise in certain areas. So mine is in, basically I can do both entertainment and education. Alexia, you want to go first this time? What are your top two or three superpowers on this list? I would say still management and I would say culture and leadership, actually. And I'm having adaptive strategic thinking. Okay, let me ask this one question. What's number one on your list on this page? The thing you're most confident about? Management. I'm really confident. You're very consistent as well. I get it. It's cool. Okay, Olivier, what are your top two or three superpowers on this list? I would say, I think, leadership, strategic thinking, and uh, and culture. Yeah. Good. Fostering collaboration and light processes. So this is what an interview looks like with me. And you can see the whole thing on Instagram. So these are the skills. Now I want us to think about ourselves as products and what are the experiments we're going to engage in? That's the question. Olivier, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what might you be doing? What do you want your job to be 15 years from now? I think ideally I have a startup studio. (laughs) I work on and I started a lot of projects. Oh, that's right. And I find the right team to actually operate it. Got it. That's a really interesting career hypothesis. You're, it's going to be Olivier's Y Combinator. Is it? Is it that? Can I think of it that way? Yeah, that's cool. That's a good idea. It's going to be O Combinator. Yeah. O Combinator. Yeah. So, how could you begin to experiment or test that hypothesis today, Olivier? Or in the next ten years, how might you develop confidence that this is either a good or a bad idea? Yeah, actually, I thought a little bit about this and I started with the idea of doing so advisory, consulting, etc. to actually try many domains and try to build a playbook. I'm starting my first company right now. So to actually build a product from the ground and that's the way I'm doing it. Already experimenting with the idea, right? Which is really cool. Okay. Do you have a hypothesis, Alexia, about your career? I'm purposely going pretty far into the future because yeah. honestly, in the long term, anything is possible. And most of us, we den- we worry about this year or the next. But if I force you to think 10 or 15 years out, these striking hypotheses come out. Go ahead, Alexia. Actually, I have no clue. Really. I think that it might be around people because it's really the thing that I'm still and I'm always curious about. Yes. Uh, but I guess that to me, I'm already interested in learning new way of working, new way of collaborating. Let me give you a crazy hypothesis. What if 10 or 15 years from now, you are the chief people officer at a company? Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. So how could you begin to experiment with that hypothesis tomorrow? Maybe working more about with HR departments or on code. Let's go have lunch tomorrow with a chief people officer. I know what they do. How do they do it? Do they like the job? What is the job? What are the skills that I need to develop in the next five years so I can do that in 10 years, right? So this is how I think about career hacking. You form a hypothesis and then you find ways to experiment. And it doesn't mean you have to stop work. Sometimes it's easy as having lunch with a person to ask them or taking a workshop and some new thing you're interested in or joining a startup on Saturdays, okay? Anyways, So these are some of the concepts of career hacking. On that special page that we built for y'all, I put a link to an article I wrote called Hacking Your Product Leader Career on Medium. It's got an NPS of 82. Anything above 70 is world-class. 80 or above is 
I call it dance on rooftops. It's very good. A 50 MPS is considered good or very good. Anyways, I'm just giving you a light introduction to how you think about these ideas and then nicely encouraging to read that stuff. And then Instagram, Instagram is a different platform. So I've just been experimenting with these little one screen kind of summaries. If not obvious, my current experiment is with Instagram. It's really been fun because they're honestly, I feel like the audience there is three quarters woman, whereas on Twitter, it's 80% men. I can see Olivia nodding his head. <laughs> and, and the other thing that's funny is Instagram is a lot younger, which I appreciate. I'm trying to, I'm trying my best to stay relevant. My, my 23 year old daughter, Britt, she has 800 followers. I, I'm about 200. And I'm like, within a month, Britt, I'm going to pass you. So she, she's, of course, she's dad, you have this silly, this stupid, goofy dad brand and your dad jokes. And this is the kind of abuse I have to take from my iconoclastic 23-year-old daughter. Okay. Is it time to answer some questions, Axel? Yeah, I think Alexia has one and then we'll take Alexa. some from the audience as well. Yeah. Yeah, because actually I read your article about the products you made several months ago and I find it so horrific. Thanks for that. Yeah, and I was wondering, how do you foresee the future of the product manager role? Do you think that it's going to evolve in the 10, 15 years coming? Yeah, so I have a couple of theories, okay? Yeah. So my dad worked for one company for 25 years. The average tenure in a role was three to five years. If you just look at the trend, we're actually a generation from now, we're going to do multiple jobs at the same time. And I'm actually experimenting with that right now. Like I was the three day a week product leader for NerdWallet, right? And that was just three days a week. And then on, on Mondays and Fridays, I could be a speaker, right? Or I could teach at Stanford. I had multiple jobs at the same time. So I think over the next generation, that's the way things are going. And we've seen it with COVID, like when you don't have to go to the same workplace every day. Oh my God, interviewing for jobs has never been easier. You don't even have to make a pretend that you're going to the dentist in order to interview with another company, right? It's hysterical. Anyways, so that's one trend. And then the other trend, I believe it's easier to build stuff every year. And so our skills as builders, it'll be less important. So our skills in terms of developing hypotheses and testing them and developing the consumer insight is going to get more and more important. And the hard part of the job and part that you love, Alexia, of getting people working together in, a, in efficient ways, that's going to get easier and better, faster and easier. And it's going to drive us as product leaders to more of the strategy, more of the developing the consumer insight. That would be my prediction over the next 10 or 20 years. And that's certainly the way it's, I've felt it. Like, I didn't know what consumer science was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Like, when I went to business school, we would do surveys. Like, oh my God, would you do a survey? Why don't you just put something out and see if it works? Anyways, my story, I'm sticking with it. Okay. We, thanks for that. We got a question from Medi here. He's saying on testing new pricing models when trying to increase revenue, is there a risk annoying your most loyal users and sending them to your competitors? I'm not a pricing expert. If you look at the Ask Gib thing, there's a hundred upvotes on a pricing question. I've chosen not to answer it yet. The main thing that I have learned is pricing like everything, you just got to test it. So Netflix today, it's always focused on new members, not existing members. If you keep clearing your cookies, you might find a lower price on Netflix. At Chag, we were doing textbook rental. We always had cohorts of 
the standard price, but we'd have 5% of our members were getting 5% higher, 10% higher, 5% lower, 10% lower. We were always testing price. I, I've gotten comfortable with doing these things that feel risky and feel annoying in the name of science, in the name of learning. My wife is in biotech. She's a physician. She just had a new immune therapy pass the FDA on Friday. Her early experiments with, were with 84-year-old men who, you know, they knew it was risky, but they were trying to develop insight for future generation in the name of science. I'll tell you one funny one. We actually did a painted door test. This is circa 2007. We were trying to figure out how to let people watch stuff on their TV screen. We built a magic box and we told our members, hey, for $70, you can get this magic box that will let you watch on our TV screen. They'd click on the button. We already had their credit card. Like they did their purchase intent. It was real behavior. And then we said, we're sorry, not available in your zip code, in your geography. I call that a painted door test. It's edgy, but you develop real insight. And from that, we learned how important it was to figure out somehow to find hardware solutions that would let you stream to your television, which you're all doing today. So the benefit in the name of science and learning of that edgy test is huge. And I feel like that's the same with Maddie's question about pricing. The insight outweighs the annoyance. Brilliant. Okay. If one plans to found a company without having had on-the-job product experience, what are the absolute crucial product lessons, skills, or experiences that would help founders? Okay. Great question. Starters are different people. Okay. And so I'm not a starter. And if you want to learn about this, I wrote an Ask Give article on it. I am uncomfortable with the ambiguity of the beginning and the level of risk. So I look for startups with a proof of concept that are ready to scale and then I scale them. But Eric's question, if you're a starter and Olivier is a starter, honestly, there's only three things you have to figure out. Do I have an idea that I am so compelled by that I'm gonna maniacally focus on this idea and make it happen. That's test number one. Test number two, do, am I so passionate about this idea that I can talk some friends into building it with me? Test number three, can I have the level of confidence where I will ask friends and family for money? And if you can answer all three of those questions passionately, I don't really care what your previous job experience is because you're a freak, you're a starter, it's awesome, okay? You're willing to take on that level of risk. You have the maniacal focus on a problem, the passion for an idea to make it happen. This is why a lot of the starters are quite young, right? And in fact, they're like Mark Zuckerberg, he was not the first social network, right? There was MySpace and Friendster. He was not the first mover. But he was passionate about the idea and then figured out the tools and technology of how to scale it because he was only 19. The same story for Bill Gates, right? Yeah. Alexia, maybe you can give, oh, I was starting to think of some similar stories for women entrepreneurs. Okay. New question. What's the best trick or practice you've learned at Netflix that you apply to your other jobs or even your private life? In building products, in your life, in your career, it's all about experimentation. So develop a hypothesis and then find any number of ways to begin to explore and test 
that hypothesis and engage in high cadence learning and experimentation. My, my last five years have been just hacking. I thought I wanted to be a Stanford professor. And then it turned out I really didn't like it. It required that I was always home in Palo Alto, couldn't travel. And then I discovered I could teach outside the classroom the way I'm doing now. And that was all by a hypothesis and then a failed experiment. I was good at it, but I just didn't love it the way I love the things that I've been doing over the last couple of years. And then you can, I'm beginning to experiment with writing. Wow. I actually think writing is a way that I can participate in a highly leveraged way. If I can get hundreds of thousands of people reading my stuff, then maybe I can help a lot of people at scale as opposed to having one-on-one -on -one conversations, which it, which it, I love that. I really love humans as much as I make like I don't, but it's not highly leveraged, whereas writing is really leveraged. So that's one of my theories that I'm experimenting right now. Cool. That's really cool. Olivier, have you got a question for Gib before we wrap up? Yeah, let me think. Yeah, I think in your usual triad in product strategy, being hard to copy, delightful and margin enhancer initiatives, I found that, I found in my own experience that the delightfulness was the most difficult to prove. And you already gave an example with the cancellation reminder. Yeah. But how would you help leaders in the same situation to prove to the leadership team that it's something to be taken seriously? The question is, in, in delighting and hard to copy margin, the hardest thing to prove is, to, is the delight. So first, the first half of my career, I was about satisfying customers. And then I just stepped it up to delight. It really sets a high goal. And frankly, it's really hard. to. And that's just developing the consumer insight. Like, my first year at, my first two years at Netflix, it didn't matter what we did on the website. It just did not matter. The most important thing was we figured out how to get the DVD into their mailbox the next day. Okay. That was it. Just that one simple idea. So I agree with you. It's really hard to find these things that delight and then prove it out. I always just come back to the four sources of data. Can I, in qualitative, get a little bit of beginning of a hypothesis? Can I ask folks in survey what might delight them? Is there a trend in the existing data? Actually, in that, that next day delivery of DVDs, we noticed that when we put a hub in Hawaii, the Hawaii customers were super happy. And that gave us the clue. It was all about next day delivery. When we put a hub in Hawaii, all the customers in Hawaii got the next day. That was a happy accident. And then the big dog was A-B testing. So we were actually able to create an experience where a subset of customers got their disc the next day in the mail and it improved retention. Okay, we're gonna go from 20 hubs in the United States for DVD by mail delivery to a hundred hubs. It's worth that level of investment. Anyways, always comes back to got four sources of data and just look for a clue in one of them. But at the end of everything I do, it's always the same. This is my 687 survey link. I'd love, love, love your feedback. There's a link on that special page for you. I can't remember the language, but it says something like click here to give feedback on this event. And it'll ask three questions. The first is on a scale of zero to 10, where zero sucks and 10 is great. How would you evaluate this experience that you've had? And then the second question will be, tell us one thing that you like about this experience. And then the third question will be, what would make it better? And really, that takes exactly one minute of your life. And it's <laughs> incredibly helpful to me. It's incredibly helpful to Axel because we're hacking, we're experimenting, right? Like 
How many times have you sat in your StreamYard and seen somebody pull up a freaking Instagram page with the highlights at the top? Of course, we're experimenting. And this is how you figure out what works and what doesn't. Hey, Alexia, you were awesome today. Thank you for playing. And Olivia, you were awesome as well. So thanks so much. Axel, thanks a ton for hosting me. Thank you, sir. I have a friend out there. What's my me? Who's my friend, Axel? Oh, yes. Tony Lope. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, see, I she's wouldn't prob- have said that. Okay. So she, that she's probably watching us now. Oh, she's probably <laughs> watching the president, right? Oh, she's watching the president. Hard. <laughs> do you want to watch Alexia in, in, in a little Tough choices. Me, or do you want to watch the, isn't your president talking right now? Yeah, he is. I think it's over now, saying? but yeah. I don't know. I'll have to catch up with the news. Okay. Some people are watching this on. It's probably bad news anyway. Okay. Anyways, it's been great fun. Thanks for having me today. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for doing this and for the energy today. That was really interesting. Thanks for hacking away during the session. That was great. And speak to you soon. Good luck with everything. Very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Olivier. Thanks, Alexia. Bye, guys. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.